Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spastiano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, I'm doing great. As you mentioned on Facebook yesterday, I won the uh, real estate license on a pole match. Thank you, uh, Vince Russo. So now I am the newest Florida real estate agent. And we plus, we got a great topic tonight. Yes, absolutely. And congratulations on that one. Always good to see the, uh, the fun in the real world and... It'll give you the uh, what they say about idle hands. It'll keep you busy with that upcoming retirement you keep teasing. Absolutely. Got to drop the belt sometime, right, Benny? Eventually. <laughs> well, you mentioned we have uh, a, a fun topic to talk about. This is another territory talk subject. Uh, one of our territory talk episodes. Those are always fun. Uh, so why don't you tell everybody who we got online and what territory we're talking about tonight? We have a good friend, uh, a, a frequent guest on our show, a fellow senior writer from uh, Pro Wrestling Stories. A brother from another mother, Mr. Jim Phillips. Jim, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Thank you, my brothers. It's always good to be a guest on the show and sit down and talk shop about the territorial days. And Lord knows we have got a gold mine this evening. Yes, sir. We do, we do. Uh, again, um, as has been the theme, your territory series on pro wrestling stories. Uh, the most recent one and the one we're talking about tonight is Mid-South. And Benny... I'm going to give you the first shot because I know you you talked a lot about Mid-South. Uh, go for it. What you thinking? Yeah, uh, Jim. So I, I think any discussion of the territories, you cannot leave Mid-South off, off the, you know, the Mount Rushmore uh, of, of great territories. And so if you can, give us some uh, a brief history lesson, starting maybe with uh, uh, Tri-State with uh, Leroy McGurk and, you know, into Bill Watts. Sure. Uh, Before I lead into that, let me just agree with you wholeheartedly that for me as a territorial fan, it's Georgia Championship, Championship Wrestling from Florida and Mid-South as the three great territories for building not only stars, but telling great stories in the ring. Absolutely. Jim, I'm going to, before you continue, I'm going to put you on the spot. Mount Rushmore has four heads on it. What's your fourth? Ah, well, it would be hard to to leave off Vince just because he took control of everything, but I would have to go Jim Crockett Promotions, man, to be honest with you, because I love that 605. <laughs> so we got JCP, we got uh, Mid-South, we got uh, uh, George Championship and uh, CWF. Yeah, man. I'm going with that. So as far as... McGurk and uh, Tri-State, if we want to go and jump right into the deep end of the pool there, we can get a little bit of back history on Leroy McGurk. He was a a wrestler himself, and whenever he was younger, had actually lost eyesight in one of his eyes and, and due to a swimming accident and continued to go on and wrestle in the NCAA and won uh, NCAA titles and tournaments with that handicap. So then he goes on to get associated with the NWA after it forms. And for a long time, up until he died in the 80s, I think he was like one of the longest living members, surviving living members of the NWA. Like 50 years he was a member before he passed away. But yeah, he was... uh, in a, a car on the way to a match, a light light heavyweight match, and the guy that was driving him around, getting chauffeured, slammed brakes to keep from having an accident. McGurk flies forward out of the back and cracks the windshield, and like Murphy's law of all shit luck, the one good eye he got gets like put out by the glasses he was wearing, shattering. So now he's blinded. So his wrestling career was effectively over, which caused him to lean into the promotional side of things. And like so many other guys, Watts included, he used his foundation as an NWA performer to concrete himself as a promoter and use those connections that he made there. And he ran Tri-State for several, several years, like decades. And then Watts came in in the, the 70s and was cutting in 
and working for Tri-State. So then Watts leaves and goes to uh, Florida and works in Florida for a little while. And after he gets done working in Florida, McGurk's running Tri-State this whole time. After Watts goes to Florida and works with Eddie Graham and goes to school under that learning tree, it seems like it all goes down to the denominator of Graham sometimes. But Watts goes and learns the ropes there, cements foundation and friendships with Dusty Rhodes and all these other guys that we see pop up later at Mid-South and goes back and returns to Oklahoma and returns to Tri-State and begins working there again. And slowly but surely, he buys his way into Tri-State. And I've heard two different or two different uh, lines of thought on how it actually happened that Watts became sole owner. I've heard that Little by little, he was like, he got into the office and just over time, little by little, he took over more and more control as McGurk got older, doing less and less. But I also heard a story from someone that was an actual high up person in the NWA. I don't want to name drop, but he told me this over the last couple of days on a conversation on the phone that Watts, it was his understanding that Watts basically got in the territory, got his foot in the door enough to where he just basically told McGurk, listen, you're not doing the business the way it should be done. And I'm going to take this over and you can either get on board or get out of the way. You know what I mean? Like it was not so much a strong arm, not a Suge Knight move, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> I think that he went in there and was like, look, this is you're not doing the business as good as it could be. And I want to take it over. So one thing led to another. And once Watts took over and rebranded Mid-South, man, everything changed. It was like everything everything jumped from there. Jim, what year was that, about 81, 82, or was it before that? Um, let me see. Uh, I'm Early thinking, 80s, right? Yeah, 80, like, yeah, 80. Because it was in February of 81 that uh, Watts started to bring Mid-South into Tulsa, and eventually that was where... He formed his base of operations there. That was Tri-State where um, Danny Hodge made his home? Yes, it was. Danny because Hodge. There were some uh, epic uh, matches with um, actually a very unlikely uh, opponent, Angelo Savoldi, for the uh, NWA Junior Heavyweight Championship. And that, those guys traded that belt several times. But that was <clears throat> that was an epic rivalry. McGurk was vice president of the NWA for a little while, and because he held that in that junior heavyweight title so many times, or light heavyweight, however you want to put it, he actually booked that that title for a good while out of the NWA office. So that's that's a that's one of the reasons you saw guys like Hodge that in that area, you know, what I mean McGurk's local area getting those runs, just like Munchnik and and those guys did out of St. Louis when he was running the NWA himself, he his guys got the grease, you know? So that's just how it works. But yeah, Danny Hodge, I mean, my God, the just the stories of the apples and the pliers and his grip strength, that's 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 a whole nother thing there. Well, there was a, a story, I guess, when uh, Savoldi and Hodge fought for the championship. And I think when Savoldi won it, uh, Hodge's father actually came in the ring and stabbed Savoldi. Good Lord. Yeah, they took their, he took their wrestling seriously. That's, yeah, especially in the territories that were super hot like that, you know. Absolutely. <clears throat> I mentioned, Jim, at the, the top of the show, the Mid-South article you wrote. I'm curious, while we're still in the beginning stages before we start getting into more of their, their later history, uh, when you sit down and say, all right, Mid-South, I mean, you're talking one of the greatest, longest-lived territories ever where do where do you start with with that story well i don't like i I don't want to give away my secret recipes for doing the wrestling territories little quick dusty for you no um i i try to start out with the heart of the territory find out who ran it and trace its any its roots back to the nwa as far as i can and then start working the wrestling family tree from there you know what i mean so, but with mid with mid south, like obviously you go back to McGurk, but then there's just so much, so much there, and then it morphed into later years, and we won't get into that yet. But like it morphed into later years and took the nationwide run, but the territorial stuff and the early TV that come out of there. If you look at the alumni list of guys 
that went through this territory, there's no way that it couldn't be one of the greatest things ever. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, there's that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. You know, it's so, it's it's incredible. You know, so usually when it comes to the territory pieces, I start with the ones that really I enjoyed. You know what I mean? That, that made me yeah. a happy fan. And it was those four that we mentioned earlier was was some of the biggest ones I did, yeah. Jim, any discussion of Mid-South, of course, begins and ends with Bill Watts. Um, what did he... So, obviously, he was a great wrestler. Um, I remember even back in the mid-60s uh, when he was in the WWF and he turned heel and he had some epic uh, challenge, uh, matches with Bruno. Um, you kind of answered part of the question that, you know, as far as how he gained some of his knowledge of, uh, of, of you know, promoting and things like that. But uh, t- talk about Bill Watts, you know, the great wrestler, and then, the, you know, the, the, the promoter, his, his management style, and what he did to make Mid-South uh, the great territory it was. Bill Watts goes back to collegiate and high school sports. He was a football player and played with the Sooners and stuff. So or went on to be recruited by the Sooners, which gives you a good idea as to why he loved Dr. Death Steve Williams so much. But he was a, Bill Watts was a journeyman wrestler back when that was still a thing. Um, In the transitional period of the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, you still had guys like Stevens, Ray Stevens, that would travel the country and work matches nationwide. Dusty Rhodes was just starting to break into that whenever he was getting away from the Texas Outlaws and doing his own thing. And Watts was one of these guys that was out there, and he would travel the different territories. And at that time, he's a big – I mean, he, all the way to the end, he was a big guy. But when he was young, we're talking brute, big, cow-fed muscle guy and would just go in there and beat the hell out of you and sold it convincingly like – Watts, he was great to watch in the ring, but as he traveled around to these different territories, you you mentioned working in the Northeast, Watts had matches throughout Florida and Georgia, and the whole time he's working with all these guys that would become, later become prominent draws and highlighted in the storylines of Mid-South. Mr. Wrestling 2 and Bill Watts had a huge run against each other in Georgia Championship Wrestling, and then... Uh, Bill Watts and Ernie Ladd ran against each other for a while, and uh, Ernie Ladd was instrumental in helping Bill Watts create Mid-South and the booking style there. So, And Dusty he fought with in Florida, and then Dusty would come out later and, and, and work Mid-South. So it's, it's a way Watts established himself as he was a good old boy. He was, uh, that's the only way you can put it, man. And he was a good old boy as it was back in those days. He was, he believed in America, red, white, and blue. He wanted his hometown to be the best that there was. If you said something cross to him, he'd slap you cross-eyed. He loved his mama, probably ate plenty of hot dogs and apple pie. You know what I mean? He was that type of guy. And in that era, those guys were running things. You know what I mean? And his reputation with the boys as a worker bled over into his reputation as a, as a businessman that could be trusted. And he very strict adherence to kayfabe, correct? And also he had the expectation that his guys could handle themselves outside. If they were out in public, they were at a bar, you know, he expected them to handle themselves. If, if there was any promoter in the NWA system or in the territorial system that was that way, it was Bill Watts. If you were uh, if you were a heel and you wanted to go out to the bars and stuff and somebody tried you, you better be able to handle yourself if you were going to go do that. And I, uh, a friend of mine, Evan Ginsberg, did uh, during the 350 Days movie that they did was doing interviews with guys. And I don't know if it was a direct interview with Bill Watts or a story that came up about Bill Watts in those interviews. And I, I'm sorry to Evan for not being able to get that correctly, but. The story was Watts got into a bar fight with a bunch of people somewhere in Oklahoma during his younger days, and it was like four or five guys against Watts. And in order for Watts to keep from getting beat by these four or five guys, he did the classic eye gouge to one guy, popped his eyeball out, and ate it. And that's like the rest of your buddies turn around and see this bastard pop your eyeball out and eat it in front of you, and you're on the floor screaming, chances are pretty good they're not going to jump you. You know what I mean? So I guess the mindset is correct, but that's one of the most violent road stories I've ever heard. 
And I can't dispute it, you know what I mean? And Evan has no reason to lie to me about it. So, yeah, I'm not sure where he heard that story, but I'll never forget it when he told it to me. Well, that that's not the first time we've heard that story on the show either. So I know it's more than one of the old the old boys backstage has told it. Okay, good then. It's corroborated. I'm happy about that. You know, Jim, one of the things I really liked about Mid-South is the way that they very slowly and, you know, in painstaking detail drew out storylines. And the one that comes to mind for me, and I know you have many other ones, is uh, Wrestling 2 and Magnum TA. So, you know, Magnum TA is, you know, pretty, uh, a great guy, comes into the territory, two smokers win. You know, first is his uh, quote-unquote coach, you know, kind of mentor kind of thing. And then, you know, then, then their partners, and then subtly you see two slowly starting to, to you know, turn. But this thing took months and months, and but it kept the, the, the fans' interest. And I'm thinking, like, you know, compare that to the WWE, where they just broke up together at the last minute to fit a pay-per-view. I think that's one of the reasons why, why Mid-South was as good as it was. It's just because of how the, the amount of thought that was put into these storylines. Well, it was long-term storytelling, but that's, I mean, let, let's be honest, the audience has got something to do with that as well. The audience's attention span these days is not like it was, but if you've got a great story where you want to turn in next week and see what this, what's going to happen next week with these guys, where's this going to go from here? I can't believe they just did that. With uh, the, and again, it's just the hooks in the mouth, man, that just keeps reeling you in, and Watts was so great, that, 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 territory was so great with long-term storytelling they would give you a little bit each week and like they did their weekly show out of the irish mcneil boys club there in shreveport and they would just just bird feed you every little bit each week you know what i mean and there was so many great stories that they told the one with ta and mystery wrestling too for fans out there who might not be familiar with this this was probably one of the greatest heel turns ever in the wrestling business story-wise, it, it started out with the young Magnum TA breaking into the business. He could he could belly belly to suplex you all belly belly suplex you all day long, but he really didn't know much else. And you could see it in the ring. You could see how green he was. And they put him with Mr. Wrestling 2, and there was the Mr. Wrestling 2 was his it was his uh, his teacher and Magnum was the protege and they did that angle and they worked that angle for a while and they got the tag belts and then you saw the great great heel team of the Midnight Express and Cornette come in and just throw gas all over the fire whenever they tar and feathered Magnum TA because they said that they were scared to fight him for the tag belts and it went through all this stuff and they went through all these things and then Magnum's going to get a shot at the North American heavyweight title. And there's a scene, it's an interview scene, and they're in a locker room, and it shows the dog. JYD is doing push-ups on the, the little uh, extended push-up bars on the ground. He's doing push-ups, and Magnum's sitting there looking at him, and Mr. Wrestling 2 and Bill Watts, and they're talking about all this stuff and where Magnum's future might go. And it's revealed that Magnum is going to get a title shot at the North American Heavyweight Championship. And you can just see, even with the mask on, the emotion from Mr. Wrestling 2, he's pissed. He, he he is not having it, right? And he's standing there with his hands on his hips, and he's walking back and forth, not saying nothing, kind of shaking his head, not making eye contact with the camera at all. It's wonderful the way they play it. And then it works into, then it's then Mr. Wrestling 2 and Magnum have a big blow up. You know what I mean? It's just such great storytelling, and, and they milked it for everything. And I could watch that little angle over and over and over. But alongside that, you also had great stories like Mr. Wrestling 2 when he came back in, uh, this was in 1982, I think. He came back into the territory and someone stole his bag. And they were making, like, he was finding his masks cut up. And he was finding his, 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 his uh, personal items defaced. And then come to find out Mr. Olympia, he was in Mr. Wrestling 2 found his bag sitting upstairs in the dressing room and then he confronts Mr. Olympia and they walk down the steps and he keeps he's holding the bag he's like what's this what's this and then it turns into a big feud and that turns Mr. Olympia heel and he goes with Skandor Akbar 
Watts was one of the best at using a heel turn to its potential and its its maximized potential. It's I could go on all day. The tag team feud where you had Butch Reed and Jim Neidhart started as a tag team because Butch Reed was going to carry Jim Neidhart to the tag title. Another one of those type protege scenarios. After they won, then Butch Reed, <laughs> Butch Reed in, in the, the arrogant self that he was, the bombastic Butch Reed is what maybe he should have been called. He was just like dogging Jim Neidhart saying he was nine kinds of worthless that he carried him to the belts and now he's carrying him with the belts and then they had a big blow up and split so yeah watts knew he knew man he had that formula down like einstein knows algebra brother (laughs) you know speaking of feuds and and moments uh one of the best benny we've we've mentioned it on the show and i know benny you've you've told people to go find it it's on youtube you have to see this moment uh, there was a, a confrontation between Watts and Jim Cornette, and this was after Jim Cornette had been thrown through a cake or smashed into a cake by the Rock and Roll Express, which, uh, uh, unrelated side note, shows that comedy and bits like that have their place in wrestling if they're done with the right serious undertones, because that led to, I mean, just a serious ser- series of serious moments. Try saying that five times fast. Um you know, you have to go check it out. It's such a great bit. And of course, you know, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Cornette and the promos that he cuts, the the angry, whiny little heel that he was at the time, you know, hiding in mama's pocket with the money. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on moments like that where it's Mid-South seemed more than anybody to be able to combine the comedy and the undertone and, and the seriousness. And it made something that was believable. I genuinely you know, understood why they just pushed him in a cake. And, and I got behind Cornette being angry and Watts is going to step in and they're going to have to punish him in the rock and roll. I mean, of course, you know, Ricky, how could you not cheer for Ricky Morton back then? You know, um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, 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 that mid South just had that aura of believability that, that most, or I should say most territories didn't, but they did so much better than, than others. You, this is directed to me. Yes. Yes. Or you're talking yes, to me. Sir. Okay. So, for from my perspective and my standpoint, Watts pushed the sport of wrestling on his program. He didn't play it like it was uh, some kind of. Uh, he he didn't play it down. Like I'm not saying that other promotions did a lot, but Watts wasn't Vince, right? Watts played it like it was real. Watts played up the sports background to all the guys that was on his roster. He was all the time talking about their collegiate and NFL status, if they had any. And he was talking about manliness. He was all the time about America. This kind of went back to what we were saying ago about earlier. And I remember that so well because there was a there was a promo that was cut ringside. And Jim Ross was sitting there holding the microphone. And it was Jim Cornette and Bill Watts. And I believe they may have been building to the Oklahoma Stampede show. I'm not sure. But uh, Bill Watts called Jim Cornette a sissy. And he, oh, yeah. and he, and he, 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 uh, he enunciated it like that. Listen here, you sissy. And him, there was, uh, he had it in his voice. So that's just like one of the most, Jim Cornette was one of the most unmanly things on God's green earth, lower than the worm shit. You know what I mean? So, like, and Cornette, everything he did was gold because he sold it because he loved the business. You know what I mean? So he was going that extra mile, doing whatever they could. The scene where they put him in the cake was so great. And I love that that segment myself, too. And they're out there and they're celebrating their Jim. It was Jim's uh, Cornette's birthday and they just got the tag titles or a win over the rock and roll. And they were Cornette or uh, Condry. Dennis Condry so smug and smarmy and he's throwing the confetti and <laughs> and Bobby Eaton sitting there all grins and an all shucks face and. Then the rock and roll comes out and pushes his face in the cake while the the midnight's on the other side of the ring, distracted by the fans. So Boyd Pierce and Bill Watts were at the announce table. Now, Boyd Pierce, we haven't touched on him yet. I dearly love him as, as an announcer. He's one of the greatest. And to hear the the boy the boyish hilarity in Boyd Pierce's laughter 
after Cornette's face went into that cake, you could tell that that was genuine. He was genuinely enjoying the shit out of that. <laughs> and not because he disliked Cornette, but just because I'm sure that on a rib perspective, that was probably, that was one of the greatest things. But Cornette went to the ring. He went to the ring in a dress. I seen him run down to the ring in a dress one time, pretending to be a woman and uh, ran down and distracted the referee and then ran back and busted his ass because he couldn't run in the high heels. I seen him run down to the ring one time in full mariachi gear to distract Mondo and Chavo Guerrero who were wrestling down there and distract them so the Midnight Express could get the win. We saw him lose his hair in a hair match. Jim Cornette comes to the ring and cuts promos in a mask. You know what I mean? Like everything that you could think of. The guy and then and like I mean all of us real fans of, of the wrestling history listen to the podcast. Just like the song says, he bled the gusher in the red suit. You know what I mean? Right there on Mid-South. So it was there was so many great moments and that were cornets and then everybody else, man. It, just, it seems like we're kind of we're sucking off Mid-South, but it's it's it was it was one of the best, you know. There's no, I don't believe in totalities, and I don't like hearing people say the greatest or or the of or the goat or anything like that because there's always going to be something coming along that's better. But pound for pound, I would put Mid South up against any wrestling promotion, any era, and I'm guarantee they would come out on top. For I've content. seen that. For I've content. seen that slap about uh, twenty times at least. That 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 slap, and Bill Watts did not pull back on that slap. And I mean, he slapped the white off of Cornette's teeth, and I mean, Jim <laughs> sold it like a pro. Oh, and I mean, and there's, a, I mean, there was comedy involved in that in that uh, angle, but it led up to something very serious, which is you know that they they use comedy to further the angle. Well, everybody got a good laugh out of Jim Cornette because he was made to be the little feminine sissy, but the reason that the Mid South, one of the reasons that it was so believable is because people laid him in stiff because that was the thing with Watts. You know, he wanted to, he would rather see it laid in stiff a little bit than to powder puff it. You know what I mean? You got guys got color so much in mid South. One of the best, if you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube, Andre, the giant mid South versus Kamala. You will see Andre the Giant get slammed before WrestleMania three by one of the few times by Kamala. And Kamala does it decisively and decidingly. It's no, oh, my back is broke. Kamala slammed him on the ground, jumped up in the air and went to belly smacking, brother. He was happy with what he did. And then Andre gets color. And you can see it in the video. You can see Andre pull the blade out of his out of his tights, get the color put it back in, and then afterwards he cuts this heater of a promo with Bill Watts and picks Bill Watts up by his collar. He said, you never see me mad, but you see me mad now. And it's friggin' great, man. It's like it, still to this day, those interviews and those promos and those matches can evoke the emotional response in me that it is. You know, it's like I'm a mark for it, and I'm, pr I'm proud to say I'm a mark for Mid-South, man. They're great. Jim, do you think that, like, I'm going to use a couple of examples here. You know, the Midnight Express, they made their, you know, they made their bones in Mid-South. Same thing with uh, uh, Jim Duggan. You got Butch Reed. You got, uh, who else? You got JYD. They all went to bigger and better things. And do you think, do you think the fact that they, they worked at Mid-South it just lent an era of, you know, an air of credibility to them that they were more attractive to. Uh, Magnum is the other one. So, you know, Magnum became right from Mid-South. I think he went right to JCP, immediately started challenging Flair, became the U.S. champion. You think th because of the way Mid-South was managed and, you know, the, 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 you know the, the caliber of the talent in the matches, that anybody who was affiliated with it got that, you know, that, that credibility. If Bill Watts put you over in Mid-South or gave you any significant run, that should tell your peers that you know what you're doing and you know this business good enough to make Bill Watts happy. The list of people that went through there is unparalleled, man. Like, uh, I'm 
I'm looking at it right now on the screen as I'm talking to you guys on a separate screen, the list of alumni, and it takes up the entire computer screen from top to bottom. And they grew stars. Guys went to Mid-South. You see, you mentioned the Midnight Express. Bill Watts put that little team together. Right after Jerry Jarrett broke out Kamala, he went to Mid-South and had a huge run. Rick Rude, still working under R-O-O-D is his last name. Skinny, looking like he needs to eat something, is on there. Green and hell. Yeah, so green. Uh, so many of those guys, man. And then you had Gary Hart come through every now and then with some people. You know what I mean? You got C. Kabuki and different people like that come through. And then they would bring in the midgets every now and then. But something that we're overlooking that we haven't brought up yet is the impact that he had on the, the Russian heel gimmick. A lot of the Russian heel gimmick. Now, obviously, uh, Koloff was doing his own thing. And uh, Nikita was born out of Jim Crockett Promotions. But Crusher Khrushchev was a Mid-South original, a Barry Darso, and uh, he started as Crusher Darso, and he came to the ring in like a, a flannel lumberjack outfit and a pair of blue jean shorts with a rope belt. He looks like some Beverly Hillbillies cast off. And, but it's like not long after that, Nikolai comes in and makes an appearance, and he's running a heel gimmick. And then, like, Nikolai is standing outside the ring watching Darso wrestle. Next thing you know, they have a match. Then Darso cuts a promo saying Nikolai was one of the strongest men he'd ever met in his life, gave him one of the best matches he'd ever had. And then two weeks later, Darso is Crusher Khrushchev, the Russian defector that is the shame of America. And Bill Watts bled that to the T, brother. He, he bled that out to a T and and built all that big Russian menace all around Darso and Nikolai. Well, then we all know Nikolai goes back to Vince in the mid-80s, and they start that, you know, I mean, 84 or so, and he starts that run there, which leaves Crusher Darso at Mid-South, and then they got the thing going on in Jim Crockett Promotions. So next thing you know, you're seeing Koloff, Nikita, Ivan, Nikita, and Crusher Khrushchev, Darso, as the triple threat, the three-man Russian tag that fucking ran riot through the 80s. So there was so much, man. Like, Bill Watts is the common denominator to so many great things in the wrestling business. Watts was very political, too, in his, you know, in his announcing <laughs> as far as Russia goes. Oh, he he didn't pull any punches, man. No. Yeah, he didn't pull any punches. And he loved having Tony Atlas. He put Tony Atlas up against uh, Darso, Mr. USA against the, the Russian defector. I mean, it's money. It's money. Well, he, you know? he, he seemed to have an eye for the, <clears throat> the feuds that you know, ended up becoming huge things. I mean, you mentioned the Midnight starting their run there and Rock and Roll Express, and that was – you know, Midnight versus the Rock and Roll Express is the, one of the biggest drawing feuds in wrestling history. But decades. then you also for decades, for decades, yes. they drew money. Well, I mean, even into the 2000s, the the reunion shows they would do were selling out, uh, were selling out uh, uh, venues that other re uh, wrestling promotions couldn't touch. And this is, you know, Bobby Eaton and Ricky Morton in their late 50s still, you know still going and ricky morton still to this day the prettiest mullet in the business but um you know uh, you, I, you also think about stuff like uh the battle of the hacksaws with butch reed against jim duggan and i mean who it, it, you think about like uh, vince mcmahon trying to have a feud today between two guys with the same name and it would be some gimmicky goofy crap that would be terrible and boring and they made it work you know um, but I, I want to talk, you, you talked about bleeding dry and, and that's perfect into the question I wanted to ask where we've had, we've had a lot of guys on the show. You've talked about it in some of your territory shows before the, the, the travel schedule, especially mid South was extra famous for it. Just the grueling and almost unbearable travel schedule. Some of these guys would wrestle 300 and, you know, three, I mean, excuse me, let me rephrase that. These guys would, you know, be on the road over 300 days a year, wrestle 500 matches a year. And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk the listeners through a typical week in the life of a Mid-South wrestler at the time. Yeah, this is, you're dead on with the travel schedule. You hear about Mid-South 
and Florida is a huge state too. People don't realize the 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 mileage that that encompasses, but it's usually mid south, AWA, and Florida as the territories you hear about with the worst travel schedule for mileage. But when when Bill Watts took over, he was working with the territory went from Oklahoma and into Louisiana was the main two states, but you also bled into Arkansas and Mississippi. So if you look at the map, like if you put a map in front of you and think about the size of all that stuff, I ran some numbers today and I think this will be a fun little exercise. I think you guys will enjoy it. And I believe the people listening will as well. Tulsa, Oklahoma was the home base for Mid-South. So every week, they shot TV at the Irish McNeil Boys Club, which is in Shreveport, Louisiana. So Tulsa to TV, one way is 337 miles. That's five and a half hours. That's if you're, that's, that's what Bill Watts traveled one way every week just to commentate. That's not going to the matches. And it was pretty well known that Watts and Ross and the guys that was that made up the office stayed at around the home base and around Tulsa. And you had Grizzly Smith is the on the road guy that ran everything, the guy that was watching over everything, the guy that was at every house show. But back to the mileage. Alec, uh, just to name off some of the cities, the major cities that we're talking about, just in Oklahoma and Louisiana alone, not counting the outskirts of Arkansas and Mississippi, Alexandria, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Lafayette, Louisiana, obviously New Orleans. You got Oklahoma City. Lake Charles is the most southwest city next to the Texas border, but they're still hitting that because I've heard Cornette read programs and talk about it. And then Little Rock every once in a while. So that being said, if you were going to own a home, you would probably want to own a home somewhere close to Shreveport because if you're hot, you're going to be on TV every week. So that's going to put you in that town for sure every week. So let's just say that that's our home base. Well, let's say that we had to go from Shreveport to Alexandria for a show. One way, that's 125 miles, an hour and a half, one way. Okay, say you did that and then TV or Shreveport to Baton Rouge, 235 miles. To Lafayette, 224. TV to New Orleans, 314 miles. TV to Oklahoma City, 376 miles. The Shreveport to Lake Charles, 188. Shreveport to Little Rock on occasion, 213. These are miles that are, I mean, granted, these are old school wrestlers. We've heard Harley Race stories about how he drove 80 miles an hour everywhere. So they were probably able to shave some time. But these are old school state highway, 70s, 80s road trips. This isn't let's hop on the interstate and play on the damn game box for you know, I mean, two or three hours while somebody, these are drinking, talking about the business. They're on the road, learning about the business, which the long road trips put the wrestlers to school in the car, which is another reason that Mid-South and these, these other territories were as good as they were. They're talking business all this time. And all these numbers that I just read off are one way, one way. Okay. So I did a little fun, I did a little fun thing just, just for us. Okay. So the week, one week in the life of a, a Mid-South wrestler, and we're just going to book the territory, okay? So this is state highways and everything, mind you. So we're going to start in Shreveport. We did TV at the Irish McNeil Boys Club, but we got to go to Baton Rouge and hit a show the next night. So that's 479 miles round trip, seven hours from our house down to Baton Rouge, back to the house in Shreveport, right? So we do that on the next night after we shoot TV, say Tuesday. Okay, so Wednesday night, we got a show in Alexandria. Well, round trip, that's 250 miles, four hours on the road, plus the show time, plus getting something to eat, all that shit. So we did that. The next day, we got a show. We got to go all the way down to New Orleans. That's 630 miles round trip, 10 hours, plus the shows, right? Okay, so now we're up to Friday and Saturday night. So, you know, Friday and Saturday night, we're going to hit some good shit. So we got to run up to Oklahoma City and do a big show over the weekend since... 376 miles 
You know what I mean? Six hours. That's the one-way shot up there. After we get done up there the next day, we're going to go to Tulsa. We're going to stay the night in Oklahoma City that night, go to Tulsa the next day, and hit a shot before we come home. And that's 110 miles over to Tulsa. We'll stay the night there, see the, go to the office, do whatever, drive back home the next day, Tulsa to TV the next day. So we're, in, we're back in Shreveport in time to tape at the Irish McNeil. That's another 337 miles. So just in that one week, from Irish McNeil all across back to Irish McNeil that morning for the TV taping, we've logged 2,200 miles wow. in one week. Damn. You know, you're talking 30, almost 34 hours of travel in one week in one round trip cycle. That's one week. And that's, that's average. That's probably, let's be honest, that's probably below average because there's probably all kinds of other shots you're doing. You might have a girlfriend or an old lady somewhere. You can not have to go back home. You can stretch it out. There's all kinds of little side excursions happening. Let's be honest. These are these are territory wrestlers we're talking about. They got they got a couple girlfriends they're stopping exactly. to see on the way around. There's side trips for beer, party, party essentials, women, whatever whatever side trips need to be made, they're being made. But 2,200 miles is a conservative estimate. You know what I mean? It could be upwards of 28. You know what I mean? It depends on how many shows a week you're hitting. And when you're high up on the card, you're working every day. That's crazy to think. I mean, you said 20, you think about 2,200 miles a week. And that's that's 52 weeks a year. You're tra- You're driving around Christmas. It's not like, you know, the road trip stories you hear today where, you know, you wrestle... 15 times a month or half the half the talent has part-time schedules you know that that's some of these estimates that i made were round trip because it was short distances if right you're only if you're only a couple hundred miles from the house you're gonna go back to the house that night and sleep in your own yeah. bed you know what i mean so you're gonna go home if you can which is gonna put you driving even more well and you have to figure like you know i i have the uh this this Christmas will be four years that I've that I've had my car and I have about forty five thousand miles on it in three and a half years. The schedule you just put, they would put forty five thousand miles on a car in less than twenty weeks. Yeah, you know that's. I mean, you're you're two hundred thousand miles. I mean, I assume rentals, but you 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 probably some of your paychecks buying new cars every couple months. You buy a junker or a reliable Japanese model car that you know is going to turn over and get you good gas mileage. You pile six guys in it, charge them all six cents a mile for the travel and trans. And you know what I mean? That's how they that's that's how it was done. Let's just tell a real quick road trip story, though, while we're talking about Mid-South and and the the travel and road schedule. We're talking about we're talking about the 80s. And we're going to talk about Bush Reed and Buddy Landale. Now, Jim Cry- or Jim Cornette touched a little bit on this on this story, and I'm gonna I'm gonna expand about it because uh, I had talked with someone else about the same story that worked with these guys. And Butch Reed and Buddy Landale, whenever they were, they did a little bit of a tag series together too. But they were partying buddies, and when I'm talking about partying buddies, I'm talking about Scarface, 1980s partying buddies. It was snowing all the time in Oklahoma. So these guys were going down the road in the car, doing their thing, and got into a car accident. And from what I was told, the inside of the car looked like somebody had blowed up a cake on the inside of the car, and there was flour everywhere <laughs> from, from the substances that went all over. And the only thing Butch Reed was worried about, he didn't care about the car being broke. He didn't care about anything else. All he was worried about was the party favors that was lost to the floor. The you know what I mean? It was one of the great, one of the great mid-south road trip stories. But you had to watch things like that because just like we were talking about earlier, we're going to bring this back around to Grizzly Smith. Grizzly Smith was the guy that was the eyes and ears of Bill Watts in the office on the road. Grizzly Smith knew all the back roads. He knew all the promoters. He knew all the rats. He knew everything that everybody was doing all the time. And mid-south had a, a fine system that was set up that, again, led more to the legitimized sport of wrestling. Because if you fuck, if you did something wrong, Bill Watts would fine you. And they was like, for instance, one of the most famous fines was if you were a wrestler sitting at the announce table and you ran into the ring 
to assist in any way and interfere in a match in any way, that was $2,500. And they use that very often and very regular as a, a story builder in the Mid-South. They would set guys out at the ring and oh, I could, there was one time when the dog ran in to help Mr. Wrestling too. And he took the $2,500 fine because he said he couldn't sit out there. I couldn't sit out there and watch him do this to Mr. Wrestling too anymore. I couldn't sit out there in good conscience and watch that happen. And he ran in there, you know what I mean, and, and took the fine. So, but there was other fines that being late to the building, all kinds of stuff, you know what I mean, that you would hear these guys would get fined over. At one point, I Jim Cornett mentioned it again on his podcast, Buddy Landell was so fined that he was, he was losing more in fines that he was making every week if Watts took them all out. But he wouldn't take them all out, otherwise he wouldn't have a paycheck. And he said he would try and find ways to bonus him back money to give him walking around money. But Watts had to stick by that because if you stick to your guns and the rest of these guys see this, this, that Watts is, he's finding this guy, you know what I mean? And it's not just all talk, then you get a little bit more respect and you get a little bit more pop behind your name with, you know what I mean? As the boss, you know, and, but there's, yeah, so many funny stories about stuff like that is that spun out of mid South. Jim, I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'm going to talk about one of these guys, and then I'm going to ask you about two others. So the first one I want to mention is, and the, <clears throat> these are all guys who went from Mid-South to WWE at some point, and they were main eventers and very credible in, in Mid-South, but they became kind of cartoon characters in WWE. So the first one is obviously Terry Taylor, <clears throat> and a lot of people remember him as the Red Rooster, but... Uh, I don't think people know that he was actually the the North American ch uh, champion, and he went to. I mean, if you look at his match, his championship match with Ric Flair, it's a classic match, almost forty minutes, and it was you know it was give and take. It was not in any way one side. It was a great match. So, but then you have um, JYD and and Duggan or Dugan as they call him. Um, <laughs> why that? I don't know. We'll get into Bill Watts and how he butchered people's names here in a little bit. That's another question, yeah. But, you know, both Watts, uh, uh, JYD and Duggan, they had decent careers in WWE. And they, I mean, they probably made a, a ton of money. But I want you to tell people who really aren't familiar with the Mid-South Territory what kind of stars they were in Mid-South. Well... JYD was the Bruno San Martino of Mid-South. Let's just be blunt about right. it. For anyone that knows anything about Bruno and, and wrestling lineage, JYD was as over as anyone could be over in that territory as anybody is anywhere in the country. You know what I mean? You couldn't, if he was the boss's son and they pushed as much money at him as possible to put him over, you couldn't have been over as, as much as the dog was. And it was the the demographic and the and the social demographic and everything the especially around louisiana and the farther south toward new orleans you get the more popular he got because the he appealed to the poor people the poor people of that area he was one of theirs this is one of ours that's that's made it you know what i mean and he was you it's hard to get a stronger love of the fans than for somebody that has made it and then to be pushed as a baby face and all the different obstacles that were put in front of the dog and in his early career and different things he had to really work his way up to the top and then once he finally started getting shots at belts you mentioned the north american heavyweight championship whenever you were talking about terry taylor the north american heavyweight title had a couple of different renditions in territories across the country and that was the pinnacle belt in the territory that was the champion of champions that was there. And then you would see guys that held that belt, as you mentioned, Flair would come in and he would work them. And let's be honest, and, and I've seen Harley do the same thing. Kudos to those guys for going in and putting that title over and the guy that's holding that title over. It only does good for the territory. Right. It only strengthened the territory by having the NWA champ come in and do that. I've, there was instances where flair would go under but he would go under and lose by dq so he didn't lose the belt but he would still go under to the champion of the local area great great ways of putting the business back over and putting the local guys on top 
Junkyard Dog couldn't have gotten any bigger as a star. Uh, you mentioned Hacksaw Duggan, and uh, yeah, every time he would come to the ring, it was Dugan, and <laughs> it makes me laugh to hear it. And the fans would chant Dugan, 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 too. So there for a while, you really didn't know for sure what his name was. But later on, you, as, as Vince McMahon pumped it into your brain, it was it was Hacksaw Duggan. And he didn't do the hoe and all that other stuff down at Mid-South. He was actually a heel for a while in Mid-South. He wrestled with Ted DiBiase and Matt Bourne as a member of the Rat Pack. And uh, he was a heel that terrorized Mr. Wrestling, too, and a few of the other baby faces down there. But let's talk about Terry Taylor, since that's the, the hit you let off with. Um, Terry Taylor was a, a good guy from everything I've been told, but I've also been told that Terry Taylor was a stooge to the office, and he would snitch on the boys and, and tell, the boy, tell the office what the boys was doing. Now, I'm not trying to paint Terry Taylor in a black with a black eye. These are just things that, that have been told that by people that I respect their opinion. But Terry Taylor was over in Mid-South. Terry Taylor was kind of like, I'm not going to say he was their All-American boy like uh, Backlund was, but Terry Taylor was, he was kind of like Ricky Morton, baby-faced pretty boy, girls loved him, you know what I mean? Come in with a lot of fire in his belly, ready to punch somebody in the mouth if they said something wrong to him. Classic baby-faced stuff. Um, Watts put him over, man. Watts liked the way he looked. Watts' son, Joel, this is a little side note. Watts' son, Joel, was a referee and a tall, skinny kid. And But he also did uh, music montages. And I think Watts' son, Joel, fancied himself a music video editor from the NTV era because he would do these music montages. He did them of all the baby faces. Terry Taylor had one. Rock and Roll Express had one. The uh, the uh, uh, Fantastics got pushed big in Mid-South. Big ups to Bobby Fulton. I hope he's feeling better. Uh, yeah, they got pushed big down there, and they had their own little video montage and stuff. But it was cool the, the way that they, they pushed their baby faces, and, and it really made you hate the heels even more. You know what I mean? When, when they would do something wrong. But, yeah, those three guys that you mentioned in particular, Vince – secured their legacies but bill watts was their foundations well you you mentioned an interesting team you talked about dibiase terry taylor or excuse me uh matt Bourne, and duggan matt Bourne's another one he was doink yeah you know to you he he went to work for vince and became a literal clown and but you know the funny thing is his his heel you know, um, almost Pennywise-esque doink was such a good character versus the cartoony face he became when Lombardi and uh, Licamelli and other guys started taking over the character. If this but was a game, of, if this was a game of gin, I would take your spade and lay down my hand right now. I will give you a name that's just like what you just mentioned: a guy that was in Mid South, Babyface technician if you will that was a mat worker over big watts pushed him as a jobber and he ended up being a cartoon heel in the wwf and is is one of the centered one of the biggest stories of a haku story out of the wwf but the guy's name was jesse barr and his dad was Sandy Barr and got him into the business. Do you know who Jesse Barr was? Afraid was I don't. Jimmy, Jimmy Jack Funk, baby. Jimmy the... Jack Funk, yeah. you are correct, okay. sir. Okay, there you, you go. You are correct, sir. Yes, Jimmy, Jesse Barr was a huge baby face. He worked all the tags, him and uh, the, a lot of the, Watts had a little clutch of babyface guys that he would just throw in tag matches and, and use to feed the stories. Jesse Barr was one of these guys. Rick Rude started out as one of those guys. Uh, yeah, Jesse Barr went on to become Jimmy Jack Funk in the WWF. And this, as the story goes, if, if I'm not mistaken, that Haku was going to either bite his nose off or pluck his eye out, one or the other. Uh, over an incident that they had, it was Jimmy Jack Funk had insulted a woman in front of Haku or had done something in front of Haku that Haku took offense with, and he was going to straighten him out old school style. But yes, okay. Jesse Barr. 
Any, anybody that's ever heard a locker room story, Haku is the last person you ever want to be on the bad side of. I saw Haku at the CAC three or four years ago, pre-pandemic, and I was in line waiting to get drinks and appetizers at Fridays in the, in the, in the casino, and I turn around, and it's Haku and his wife and his son, and I turn around, and I said, please, sir, go ahead of me. I've told this story. I don't know if I told it to you guys or not. I said, please, sir, go ahead of me, because the last thing I want to be is in between Haku and a plate of food. So I got the hell out of the way. I also like my nose, right? Yeah, I, I right. got I got out of the way. But there's we can't we 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 could throw darts at the dartboard all day long and hit a famous name that came out of that territory, man. There was so many of them. Coco Ware, you know, yeah. before he was Beware, he, he was uh, you know, all those guys, bunch of them. And then you, you tell me, Bill Watts, <laughs> Bill Watts didn't have him. Uh, Wearing parachute pants, dancing to the ring. <laughs> Frankie was not in the building. Whenever I seen him at the mid at Mid South Coliseum or at the Iris McNeil tapings, no. But oh. uh, yeah, the uh, and the lady wrestlers that went through too. But the thing about Watts was he would take his baby faces like Magnum and he would put them up on a pedestal. And then he had guys like Akbar and Cornette and other people that would bring through stables of. of Terrible heels. Skandor Akbar brought through uh, Crusher Broomfield from the ICW. And when Crusher Broomfield got to Mid-South, guess what he changed his name to? Got us on that one. Anybody? The One Man Gang. <laughs> the One Man Gang started in ICW as Crusher Broomfield. Ronnie Garvin was working in ICW at that time as the One Man Gang, Ronnie Garvin. Crusher Broomfield migrates... There was two or three guys that went from ICW straight to Bill Watts. There was Crusher Broomfield. There was uh, uh, he was a tag team wrestler with Lanny Poffo. George Weingaroff, I believe, was his name. He was partially blind. He migrated to Mid South from ICW, and Lanny himself went to ICW and was going to work as Miss as Magnum TA's tag partner for a short time and Mr. Wrestling 2 in a live promo looks right over at Lanny Poffo and proceeds to tell him how he didn't know if he could trust him because his dad Angelo was sideways and those guys couldn't be trusted and his brother Randy was a wild man and he didn't know if he could be trusted and Lanny I don't know why they dropped that storyline but Lanny actually sat there and he was like well I'm a member of the Poffo family but I don't go by their tactics and all this stuff like he was trying to separate himself you know what I mean but then he took umbrage to the things that Mr. Wrestling 2 said and it eventually led to a match but it was just different stuff like that you know what I mean you got all kinds of little gold nuggets in Mid-South you know everybody went through and did a little something there you go well, as we as we wrap up, I mean, you know, we were talking before we got to recording that that we could do a hundred part series on Mid South. I guess I'm going to ask uh, last question as, as we wrap up the um, Mid South rebranded as the UWF. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on why the UWF didn't work. Well, I'm going to upset a few people by this opinion. I'm sure. One of the main reasons that the UWF didn't work was because Steve Dr. Death Williams was an unreliable, marketable guy to carry the company. He was good in the ring as far as looked good. He had a menacing attitude. He would knock your head off, but he was unmarketable when it came to anything long term. Mm -hmm. He wasn't somebody that you could build a promotion around, and that's what Watch tried to do. And it didn't work. And then we and that like we keep I keep using the phrase common denominator. If you want to if you want to distill the territories down, everything you're going to have a Vince McMahon factor in the distillate. That's just the way it is. He was offering big money to these guys to to draw them away from these territories. So as Mid South and Junkyard Dog was one of the very first acquisitions. He was a very early on guy that that vince used to push the cartoon and the brand and wrestlemania and all that stuff and uh right out of watts but for a long time they had a talent exchange going on but that's that's another story for another day the reason the uwf failed in my opinion was a combination of poor draw as a result of williams 
and then Gordy was there, and you had Gordy and, and Williams that worked together every once in a while, and they did shots in Japan. Gordy was a great draw. They should have kept him more as a centerpiece, in my opinion, and it might would have did better. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, it was inevitable. Nobody was going to stop Vince once Mania happened, and the money that the guys saw, the money that was being made. And then Watts had his own different financial issues mm-hmm. going on. And he ended up going back down to WCW. There was just a lot of a lot of different variables in the suit, man. You know what I mean? That that caused it to to end up being the way it was. I think, and and I maintain this, if Georgia, Florida, and Mid South could have made a union in the territorial days pre nineteen eighty five and stuck with it, Vince McMahon would have never taken over. That's the only way I ever see Vince McMahon not getting the country. Because Watts had nationwide programming on TBS. It was Watts that led to the Black Saturday. Turner Turner invited Watts in for an hour of programming because Watts had good stuff. And then Vince come in with his money and and took it away. You know what I mean? That was was Black Saturday. So I think that if those three promotions and those three territories could have banded together in an early incarnate conglomerate type of deal that they could have done it. The ones that tried it later on, uh, Fritz and, and Lawler and those guys that tried it later on, it was too far gone past the point of solidarity. They had too many people that was being plucked out of their camp. Vince was buying away too many people left and right. I think the only way that, that anyone could have survived Vince is if those three foundational territories could have came together to form something and took everything over from Oklahoma City straight across to, you know what I mean, straight across to Virginia all the way to Miami. If they could have took that, that's 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 a meat market, man, for wrestling. That's strong, strong stuff. So that's the only way I see that that could have ever happened. But as far as Bill Watts putting his stock into the UWF, he went nationwide and it fell out from under him. He tried to get nationwide TV with Turner. It fell out from under him. He banked everything he had pushing Steve Williams, and that didn't work out. And then by the time, you know what I mean, he tried to circle wagons, it was too late. I can understand that. Benny, as we wrap up, any closing thoughts? I know you were a, Mid, uh, you were a Mid-South fan. Yeah, I still am, and I'm just, you know, I, I totally agree with Jim that when you think of all the people that passed through that territory and all the guys whose whose stars were made by Mid South, it's absolutely amazing. I would I would like to offer up the chance for a future show that is just the feuds of Mid South, where we just talk about the feuds of Mid South and the different ways that those careers were made there in that territory that we saw for decades later. Absolutely. Yeah, we We've talked about a couple of them with the two and TA that that made Magnum TA. Right. Yeah. So many more. So many more. We barely Skandor Akbar was was pivotal for for years in the early 80s of that promotion. And we yeah, we he didn't really we didn't really get around to him. I think we should do this again. I think we need to do another Mid-South. I'm down for that. Absolutely. I mean, I look the the picture and your article, your Mid-South. Uh, wrestling association your wrestling territory series is on pro wrestling stories i mean the first picture the the banner image you've got the rock and roll express you got butch reed and duggan you got midnight express magnum ta mr wrestling junkyard dog i mean you you just uh, randomly point at someone in that photo and you could spend an entire show talking about the legendary feuds and matches they had in mid-south it's just absolutely incredible the volume of talent and it's kind of, in a way, it's nice to see, but it's also one of those bygone era feelings where, you know, even as someone who still watches wrestling today and has been a fan for my whole life, that aura, that awe of watching the midnight and rock and roll, you know, I, I, I'm never going to have that again because it's wrestling is not, it's not that anymore. It's not the, it's still real to me, damn it, kind of feeling. I mean, obviously that genie's gone, but 
you know, something like you said, the larger than life stories that Bill Watts could tell that those stories are gone and which is wrestling. It's just not the same, but it's there. It's the tapes. It's the territories. You got to find them. Got to watch them. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for being here. As we wrap up, I'll give you uh, any any time to plug final thoughts, anything like that. I just want to say, everybody, if you if you enjoy what we're doing here, get out and check out ProWrestlingStories.com. I've done uh, territory pieces on five or six different territories now. USWA, Mid-South, Florida, Georgia, San Francisco, Detroit. So they're out there. I, I appreciate everybody taking the time to read them. But I love bringing the history to fans that might not have known it before. That's uh that's that's like a, a chef getting a pat on the back for cooking a great meal, man. You know, it's it, it brings me a lot of pride and a lot of happiness. And as always, JP, the editor-in-chief of the website, does amazing artwork. We're going to be working tomorrow morning. We're going to be working on artwork for the next Wrestling Territories that will be out in about seven days. So look forward to it. I'm not going to spoiler it, but it's coming. So the next one is around the corner, brothers and sisters, and I do. I, I humbly add, thank everybody for support they've given me in my writing over the years. And you guys, man, I love coming on here and doing the territory talk with my brothers. It's always a good time. And let's hit Mid-South again, man. I could do another hour. Absolutely. Jim Phillips on ProWrestlingStories.com, the territory series for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. I'm Dan Spastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Night, folks.